Galatians chapter five. We'll start in verse 13, finish out the chapter. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Father, it is upon it that we stand. It's a, we drink it in, we take it in as hungry men and women, Lord. Lord, you said, Jesus, you, out of your own words, you said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I pray this morning that we would come here this morning hungry and thirsty for only the righteousness which you can give. We lay aside all of our self-righteousness and we submit ourselves to your word. May you, by the power of your spirit, may you in this hour, may we subdue by the power of the spirit, may we subdue the flesh and may we hear from you and may we submit to you in your word. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So you'll have to forgive me. I I know that I'm already mentally thinking about where we're gonna be in a couple of weeks uh, when we start in the second Sunday in January. We're gonna be talking about the story of the Bible. And so I know that like even today's sermon, it's like we're not yet there, but I'm like, I'm, I'm there mentally thinking about it. But it's, uh, it's important. You need to understand what the storyline of the Bible is, what's happening throughout the Bible in order to even understand Galatians, the, the fifth chapter and the sixth chapter in all of the Bible. That the, what's happening is, is that the gospel, the, and when I mean the gospel, the gospel is simply this. It's, a, it's the good news. And what's the good news? What's the good news of what Christ has come to do for sinners? What sinners like you and I, what we could not do on our own, Jesus has done for us by living a life that we could not live by dying a death that we deserved, by rising victoriously as a way to show that he's conquered both death and hell and sin and the grave and all of those things that stand in opposition to us. Jesus has conquered all those things and that's the good news is what Christ has done. That sin has broken everything. When I mean sin, I I don't just mean your sins, although they break things, they certainly have destroyed their fair share. I'm not just speaking about your sin. I'm speaking about sin, edemic sin, the sin that we're going to find when we get to, in just a few weeks, when we get to Genesis chapter uh, chapter three. It's that sin 
man's rebellion, Adam's rebellion that has broken everything. And through the fall, that's what it's called. It's a man's sin and rebelled against God. And then things fell, things fell apart. Things fell to pieces. We fell from our right places or from our right standing with God. It is destroyed and it has wrecked everything. It's wrecked our standing before God. Our relationship with, from God has been destroyed. It's uh, destroyed our fellowship with fellow man. We're at war, the Bible says. We're at enmity. There's strife between us and our creator. There's strife within ourselves. Certainly we feel that as we read a text of scripture like this. We feel that when we feel a lack of love and a lack of peace and a lack of joy. When we read in here that the, the spirit comes and he opposes the flesh to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Certainly, hopefully our lives would, uh, would say a amen to that truth of that. We're at war with ourselves and we're at war with our, with our brothers and our sisters. We're at war with one another. We're at enmity with one another. If you don't believe me, then maybe it's because you're not on social media or maybe because you don't have Fox News or CNN News or whatever other news station it may be. Maybe you're just not tuned in, but certainly we can say that we're gonna talk about today is that we are at war with each other. We're at enmity with each other. We are destroying each other through racial prejudice and through, through superiority and inferiority, through sexism, through lust and sexual perversion, through substance abuse, abuse, good grief. The Bible has a word for the work of sin in us. The work of sin in humanity, the word that the Bible uses is the word bondage. But Jesus has come to set us free. That's what we said time and time again, Galatians as a as a as a book fits within the storyline of the Bible. It's about freedom. Christ has come to set us free. We didn't read it, but that was um, Galatians 5.1. It's the key verse in the book of Galatians. It says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free and we are to stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, that the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus through our belief in that, it frees us and it enables us to know God, to have a right relationship with God, it frees us from the bondage of our sin and the lifeless legalistic religion. It frees us from the power of the flesh by giving us the spirit, a new governing disposition. The gospel leads to a radical inward change in us, a transformation that produces beautiful and rich fruit in our lives. And today, as we will see, the gospel frees us. It enables us to have right relationships with one another. In this chapter, again, a chapter on freedom, it is bristling with practical insight and practical wisdom and practical principles for our relationships. Now listen, it's not saying we're freed from relationships. That's not what it says. Like some of you got excited there for a second. You're like, okay, a freedom and freedom of relationships. Okay, we're free from relationships. This means that I got freedom now to buy that plot of land way out in Bald Knob or in Montana. It's about the same, you know? No neighbors around. Just me and my little log cabin, maybe a little dog on the side, fenced off, walled up, whatever. Like maybe that's what it's saying. It's freeing us from relationships, but that's not what it says. This text doesn't say you've been freed from relationships. What it says is you're being freed to have mutually life-giving, encouraging relationships. What we're going to read and what we're going to find when we read Genesis is we're going to see God creating by his, the power of his word. God's going to create and he's going to create. He's going to form and fashion man and he's going to breathe life into man. And there's going to be this, um, 
this uh, refrain all throughout Genesis, the first chapter and into the second chapter where God's gonna say, and it is good and lo, it is good. And then all of a sudden God's gonna create something and he's gonna say, it's not good. And the thing that he created that wasn't good, the thing that he fashioned that wasn't good was a lonely man. And then God in turn will make a suitable helpmate. He'll make a woman. When Adam sees her, she's called woman because when Adam sees her, he says, whoa, man. That's what my grandpa's jokes. And you gotta, well, you gotta get it. You know, they was naked and there was no shame there. That's his wife. Whoa, man. But actually what he says in there, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She looks just like me. An aardvark didn't look anything like me. A giraffe didn't look anything like me. Possibly a dinosaur didn't. No, we'll leave that alone, right? We're gonna leave that alone. Didn't look anything like me. But she, Eve, she looks just like me. And then God will say this, not just that it's good, but that it's very good. The first family will be formed. Adam will have a suitable helpmate and they'll be in community. And then sin wrecks it all, as we will see. Sin and the rebellion, it wrecks everything. It wrecks the relationship. And we'll see instead of in the, when we get there, we'll see that instead of uh, being naked and knowing no shame, what's gonna happen is sin will enter and shame will enter and they will hide from each other. They will hide from God. They will sow fig leaves. And what this text is saying here though is that the gospel undoes all of that. This text is how the gospel undoes, undoes our relational disharmony and our self-concern and it drives us to love one another. That's what this text is about, or one of the things this text is about. The context for life-giving relationships, make no mistake when Paul speaks about these life-giving relationships, us a call to love one another, to serve one another, the context for that to occur is inside the church. Now, I know that many of you have missed that in churches that you've been a part of. Some of you have been in mean and cantankerous and contentious churches, but let me just say that, like we never... We never interpret our experience upon the text. You don't say like, that can't be what Paul means is for life-giving relationships to occur within the church because I've seen this and I've experienced that and I heard about this and all of those sorts of things. We never interpret the text in light of our experience, but we in interpret our experience in light of the text. And what that means is it's okay to say like, that church missed it. We miss the goal and the work and the power of the gospel whenever we fell out of love for one another, whenever our church split, when we, when, we, uh, when we tore each other apart in that business meeting, we were not acting in, in, in step with the spirit as Paul calls us even to do here in Galatians 5, 25. We know that because following in Galatians 6, 10, Paul says this, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially, he says, to those who are in the household of faith. There is to be a special kind, a, a, a richness of relationship between those in the church. In John 13, Jesus said this, in this that they will know that you are my disciples if you don't hate each other. No, that's not what he said. 
What he says there is, if you have love for one another, Jesus is saying there will be a relational richness in his disciples that will be evidence to the power and to the work of him at work in our lives. How will it show up? How will people know whether the, whether the power of Christ through the, through the Holy Spirit living in and abiding you, how will people know that it give evidence to that? How can people know it? What's in the way that you love each other, especially those inside the church? Even this week, Pastor Darren Patrick, a, a, a pastor that I follow on, on Twitter, even though he's a, he's a Cardinals fan, but nevertheless, a, a St. Louis Cardinals, not Louisville Cardinals, I would never follow somebody. like No, I'm joking. <laughs> but he says this, how do I know if I'm really being the church? He asked that question. How do I know if I'm really being the church? Now that's language that we use. I don't know if it's all together grammatically correct, but in a few minutes, Pastor Derek will say, now go be the church. And Pastor Darren Patrick saying, how do I know if I'm really being the church, if I'm actively participating in all of the truths and walking out what the church is supposed to be? And the answer he said in this tweet is, you are presently in life-giving and character-sharpening relationships that help you grow up in God and send you out to, to love the world. That's part of what it means as we are participants in the church this enmity and this strife and all of this relational disharmony that belongs to the world. And you and I, as the church, the word church means ecclesia. We've been called out of the world. We've been called out of those things and we've been given the spirit so that we can be empowered to love each other with real love. In fact, we see that throughout this text. Let's just look for the next few minutes at the text of scripture. Look at how he starts off in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. The question isn't whether or not you've been freed for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. The question is whether or not how will you use your freedom? That's what he follows. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for, for the flesh. That is what's broken and sinful in you, what's corrupt in you, but do this in turn, but through love serve one another. Verse number 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The kind of love that is Christian, a Christian love is a love that serves. Love is more than emotional feelings. It is not just the absence of animosity and hate, but there is something present, real love, Christian love. It's, there's something present in your heart that a love for each other is evidenced, he says even, in a desire and willingness to serve one another. Love that motivates us past self and past our concern for ourselves and to concern for others is Christian love. Love that turns us outward in love towards others and in service towards others. That is the work of the gospel. That is the work of Christ in the, in the human heart, shaping us and transforming us. And then you have in verse number 15, a warning. The warning is the consequence of a lack of love. But if you bite and devour one another, he says, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, the flesh is, uh, the flesh is constantly hungry inside of us. That's why Paul uses the language that you don't gratify the flesh, that the flesh is desirous and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always hungry. Like those of you in the room who have raised teenage boys, uh, you, you probably understand that. You know, mine, not so much, uh, but a lot like me, but it, wasn't, it didn't hit me when I was a teenager, but it hit me later on in life. I would just hit seasons of my, uh, uh, for like a, a, a week that I would just eat everything that wasn't nailed down in the house. Like any of the other men, like you're saying, hey, you just 
described every Tuesday. What are you talking about? But I would hit seasons of, of life like that. Maybe once a month it would hit. I remember one time uh, Luann and I and my, my sister Missy and her husband Bill, we went all, all went on vacation. We didn't have any kids at this time. We'd rented a little condo. It seems like it was like, a, I think it was, a, 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 I don't remember, somewhere in Florida, we'd rented this condo and we got down there and we, the girls went out and they bought food for the week. Like, hey, we're going to keep costs down and so we're not going to eat out a ton. We're going to fix food for the week. So they bought all these, you know, fun foods to eat, chips and pizza rolls. And remember, they got some bread and some lunch meat and all this stuff. And Bill Jones and I, we had purchased a, uh, a PlayStation 1. That'll tell you how long it was. And the first Call of Duty had come out. And now we weren't big, big video game guys, but at, for whatever reason, there was something about that game that we just ate up. And Bill Jones and I stayed up all night on the first night of vacation playing Call of Duty and eating every bit of the food. <laughs> all of it. I mean, we ate so much food that Luann started crying the next morning. Goes, now what are we gonna do? We're down here, we don't have any money. Now we don't have any food because you all ate it all. <laughs> and that's the work of the flesh. You can't satisfy it. It just, it just, it's just always craving, always wanting to eat, always grabbing a hold of anything. And that's why he's saying here, Paul says, you got to be careful what you feed the flesh. The way that the flesh wants to be gratified, it wants to be satisfied. And if you don't be careful, it will feed relationally on others. If you don't subdue the flesh by the power of the spirit, then here's what's going to happen. You can bite and you'll, and, and if you bite and nip at one another, then you're going to devour one another and you'll be consumed by one another. Again, he's speaking relationally about relationships within the church. He's saying, be careful that you don't act like a pack of growling dogs, posturing, circling one another, sizing one another up, feeling territorial over your space, over your toy. And then you light into one another. First, it's a nip and then it's a full-blown fight. Next thing you know, you've destroyed each other. That's what happens in churches that are empty of the Holy Spirit, empty of the Spirit's love, empty of the work of the gospel. Now, by God's grace, that's not us. But we didn't drift our way here. And neither will we ever drift our way into love. But if we don't fight for this, we don't ever let up off of the accelerator. We don't ever pump the brakes. We don't, even, we don't even shift gears. We power shift, right? We don't even touch the clutch. We just keep shifting gears into higher and higher and higher forms of love. We don't ever let go. The way that we nip and tuck and growl and all of those things is just like, is what he's saying, animal, where we feel territorial. We question people and question their motives and grumble and complain. And the next thing you know, we've consumed each other. And next thing you know, all of this that we enjoy, it goes away because we've grieved the Holy Spirit. Jesus, may it never be. Protect us from that. In verses 19 through 23, what we have is we have the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. I've said it before and I'll say it again, but notice how they, they, they shape our relationships, both in the negative as works of the flesh, and they also give shape to our relationships in the positive. Under the works of the flesh, there's 14 listed, and of the 14, there's eight of them have to deal with relationships. The flesh destroys relationships. That's the whole point. And then conversely, look at how the Spirit builds up relationships through fruit. 
He changes us inwardly so that we can really love each other and really be friends to one another and really with real humility speak truth into each other's lives. The Spirit is producing love and joy and peace and patience. Who's the patience for? It's not just inward patience. That's not what he's speaking about. So I can be more patient so I don't knock somebody out, but it's, you know, it's something that's outward as well. It's long-suffering. That's what patience means. In the same way that God is patient with you, he don't pop you like a zit off of this planet, but he's long-suffering with you, watching over you. Kindness, which is the opposite of envy. Kindness allows me to rejoice in others' goods. Goodness, which is integrity and faithfulness, which is loyalty and courageous love. Gentleness, which is humility and self-forgetfulness and self-control. And then in verse 26, we'll spend the rest of our time there. Look at what he says. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, conceit is, um, is being puffed up. That's what conceit is. Conceit, as we would think about someone who is conceited, we would think, well, they think more highly of themselves than they ought, right? They're like a balloon and you, you take a balloon and you, you know, maybe you got a pump of air and you pump it up and it's just this big balloon full of air. Like that's what we would say about somebody that's conceited. Oh, they're just full of hot air. We'd say something like, you know what? I'd like to buy that guy for what he thinks he's worth and then sell him for what he's really worth and make a profit. I mean, have you ever heard somebody say that, right? Like we say that from time to time. And what we're getting at is that guy doesn't understand who he is. He's, he's conceited. He's, he's puffed up. His ego is puffed up. And there's an emptiness to him. Now that is, I think, gives a, a fairly good picture of what the Apostle Paul means here when he talks about, let us not be conceited. Let us not be puffed up. But there's even a, a deeper meaning here. It's one of those words that's hard for us to translate into the English. In the Greek, it's this word, kenodoxoi. Now, I don't usually throw around Greek. I'll be honest with you. I, don't, I haven't studied the Greek. I looked this up. I use blueletterbible.com. But this word's important because it's the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used right here in Galatians 5, 6. And the Apostle Paul's really given us insight through the inspiration of the Spirit as to how we work and how we relate to one another. And if we understand this, it will lead us to freedom. So stay with me. But this is what the, this word here means. In this word is a D-O-X. And D-O-X means glory. It's dox or doxa. It's a form of that. And doxa means glory. Like we've seen the doxology, which is a, 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 you know, a song of glory. That's what we're singing there. And kendra means absence of. That this word is translated, maybe some of you have a translation that uses the word vainglory. What it really actually means is that don't be, or a person that is conceited is empty of glory. But here's the truth is deep inside of us, we know that we are small. We know that we actually are insignificant. And that is true about us. We are small. And the truth is, is a, uh, but the reality is that we are insignificant. I'm not saying you're unimportant. I'm not saying you're unloved, but when you think about just you, you really are in the grand scheme of things, you are pretty small and you are pretty insignificant. And a healthy version of understanding of this would be the sense of awe, A-W-E. 
It's a sense of smallness in the, in the presence of something that is massive. That's the sense of awe. Have you ever stood in awe of anything? Tell you often about the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. I think it's the first time I, 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 I really realized what the sense of awe was about. As I stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, I certainly didn't feel large. I certainly, as a human being, I didn't feel all that important. I felt the opposite. I felt very, very small when I looked at something as, as massive as that. There was another time whenever, uh, it seemed like it was during the time of the, the Haley Comet. Now, nobody handed me a pair of Reeboks, which I'd be glad of that, but there was the Haley Comet and we were on vacation again in Florida. And I remember my parents took me to the planetarium. We got to see through a telescope outside, we got to see Haley's Comet and that was fascinating. It looked like a ball of fuzz up in the sky. But then they came around and they were saying, hey, we've got like one of the big telescopes and we've got it focused in on Saturn. Like if anybody wants to come in and see Saturn, you can. And so a line formed and we climbed up these steps and I looked through like a telescope. And as I looked through, like they said it was the real Saturn. Now it could have been a picture of Saturn taped on the front. I don't know. But it looked exactly like what you see when you Google Saturn. Every image that comes in, it looked exactly like that. And I remember as a little boy thinking about, holy cow. How far away is that thing? And I can see it and see its rings and that's it. I'm seeing, I'm looking at Saturn. And in that moment, a sense of awe filled my heart. A sense of expanse, something bigger than me, a sense of smallness. And that's the healthy side of vain, that's the healthy side of vainglory. It's to understand that you are small and to understand that you are unimportant, unimportant, but conceit is the unhealthy response to that smallness. So what you do is you either puff yourself up to fill in the gap, to feel less small, or you idealize or idolize others and place them into that smallness. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that it will lead you to, conceit will lead you to provoking one another or envying one another. Provoke is competitive. It means to challenge someone to a contest. Why would you challenge someone to a contest? Right, the, the, the old Westerns and the old shows come into mind where the men would pull off their gloves and slap the other guy in the face, right? Provoking him, saying like, hey, let's go to a duel, right? Pull out your gun, take out your sword. Let's go fisticuffs out here. That's provoking one another. And why would you do that? Because you think you can beat that person. You think you're better than that person. Provoking someone highlights your superiority over them. Provoking is the stance of someone who is sure of his or her superiority looking down on someone they perceive to be weaker. The opposite of that is to envy one another. Envy means that you want something that rightfully belongs to someone else or to want that person not to have that thing. Envying is the stance of someone who is conscious of their inferiority looking up at someone they feel is above them. And superiority and inferiority are the blueprints for loveless and godless relationships. You put a bunch of depraved people in a room and force them to interact. And in a few hours, those individuals will have sized up the room, the others in the room. They will have decided who in the room they feel superior to and who in the room they feel inferior to. And this is just what we do as broken, glory-hungry humans. In its ugliest form, this is racism. 
where we feel superior or inferior or inferior to someone else because of the color of their skin, but it doesn't stop there. It happens everywhere. And the truth is it tears our world apart. It tears our societies apart and it tears our churches apart. And most of all, it tears relationships apart. We feel threatened, hungry for glory. So we blow up through becoming defensive and overbearing or we clam up through self-deprecating thoughts or attitudes or posture. And neither of these are loving and neither of these are in line with the gospel and neither of these are in freedom. That the fruit of the spirit is something that is observable in our lives. If you were living in light of the gospel, living in the spirit, it will show up in your relationships. That's what the apostle Paul is saying. And so listen, let me just ask you a list of questions that I've struggled with even this week. These thoughts that I have to say like, hey, are my relationships real? Am I a good friend? Am I showing others love? Now listen, like what I wanted to say is like, ask yourself these questions, but listen, don't do that. Ask a trusted friend these questions because you and I, we lie to ourselves all the time. Those of you who tend towards superiority, you lie to tell yourself you're really not that bad. And those of you who tend towards inferiority, you lie to yourself and say, oh, I'm far worse. And so find a trusted friend and ask them these questions. Listen, if friendship is hard for you, if you can't make friends, you don't keep friends, then maybe you're not living in the fullness of the gospel. Maybe you haven't been set free from conceit and living in love. Maybe you approach friends envying one another. And so what you do is you suck all the life out of the friendship and you never give anything in return. If you are abrasive and rude and discourteous to others, that isn't humility, that's not kindness, and it certainly isn't love. If you are easily offended or you get defensive very quickly, or you feel that you always need to prove yourself, that's not living in relational freedom. If you're always getting your feelings hurt, always suspicious, if you oftentimes feel excluded, you always feel hurt. And that's why you go from friend to friend, from group to group, town to town, job to job, church to church. Then maybe it's a lack of love and a lack of joy and a lack of peace and a lack of kindness and a lack of faithfulness in your own heart. If you tend to pick arguments with people or you do the opposite and you completely avoid confrontation, maybe it's a lack of love. If there's anyone that you would reluctantly receive in your life, now listen, I'm not talking about someone who's habitually hurt you or abused you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a certain class of people, certain part of people. There's people that you just judge them to be uh, socially annoying and you draw lines of separation through either ignorance or arrogance or preference or whatever, then what you're doing is you're revealing a self-centered heart. And the gospel frees us. It frees us from relational disharmony and it frees us from vain glory. The gospel destroys our conceit and it destroys it in three ways. Number one, the gospel it fills us with a proper sense of awe. 
so you don't have to be empty and conceited and, and, and vain, empty of glory. It gives us something glorious to sink our teeth in. That when we think of the majesty and the beauty and the power and the splendor of God, the God who created this universe was just the words coming out of his mouth. As we think about that God and that God, that same God who stooped low to make himself one of us, the same God who put on flesh, who lived as one of us, not in a mansion, not as a king, not in royalty, even though he was a king, not devoid of hard things of this world, but he came lowly in this life. Paul says in Philippians 2.8, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by being coming obedient, even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we think about that, it fills us with a sense of glory and a sense of wonder and a sense of awe. You think, how can God do that? And why would God do that? And then we, we can't come up with the right answers. And all we can do is stand in awe and amazement of God, of who he is and for his plan of salvation for us. And in fact, in Acts chapter two, it says that one of the marks of the New Testament church, one of the marks of the first church is that they were simply in all of the power and the work of the gospel among us. Luke records it like this, and all came upon every soul. May we never forget, and we never cease to capture a sense of all at the grandness of God and his plan of salvation for you and I. First, the gospel, it fills us with a proper sense of all, so we don't have to be puffed up in ourselves, but we have a right perspective of all. And it speaks to the smallness of us. That's number two, the gospel preaches a message to our hearts. The truth comes alive inside of us. It's the single truth that speaks to both our superiority and our inferiority. The gospel speaks and informs our superiority. We feel more highly than we ought that the gospel reminds us that we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe. It reminds us that we're not just run-of-the-mill sinners, but that you and I, we have sinned in such an egregious way before a holy and just God that the only solution wasn't you working harder. It wasn't you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It wasn't you trying to become a more moral person. That the only solution for your salvation was for the perfect Son of God to come, to humble himself, to die in your place, to literally be tortured to death. That's how horrible of a sinner you are. And I am. Paul says it like this, it is for by, it is for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. And this truth brings us low and it humbles us and it pops our feelings of superiority. But also the gospel, it builds us up. The gospel speaks to our inferiority with the truth. The gospel tells us that we are more loved and we are more ex and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared to hope. That same passage in Ephesians 2, it starts with, because of the great love with which he has loved us, that in Christ we who were once far off has been, have been made one in him. A radical love here. A love that awakens us from spiritual deadness and makes us alive with Christ and welcomes us into his family. And only the gospel 
Only the gospel makes us neither overly self-confident nor self-disdaining. It makes us both bold and humble. It's a truth that we believe and this truth that transforms us and shapes us and works itself out into our relationships with everyone. It frees us from the never-ending cycle of comparison with others and it frees us to love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. Thank you, Jesus, that while we were still sinners, that you died for us. And as we come to your table, we remember that. And may this truth, may it transform us. May it transform us, Lord. May it speak to both our feelings of superiority and our feelings of inferiority, Lord. Put us in the right room and we would feel superior to people. Put us in a different room, we'll feel inferior to those people. We live our lives constantly measuring up to others, Lord. And that's not love. It doesn't free us, Lord, to love. But Lord, you have freed us through your finished work. What you've declared to us by your death and resurrection, Jesus, by your incarnation, by all of it, what you have declared to us is that we are more sinful than we want to admit, and yet we're more loved than we ever hoped for. And may those two truths for us, as they're brought home and teased out by us preaching the gospel to ourselves, us believing the gospel and the, and the spirit enabling us to believe those things. As we believe those things, Lord, would you transform us? And may our lives, may it be a picture and a testimony to what we've read in Galatians 5, that we've been freed and we're set free and we're living lives of freedom. For your fame, we ask that in your name, amen.